Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and in 2012, I was a broke, hungry new college graduate trying to pay the rent on a part-time salary. For 20 hours a week, I'd clock in at San Francisco's magnificent Asian Art Museum, located right where downtown meets the Tenderloin. Luckily for broke little me, the Tenderloin was, and continues to be, a smorgasbord of cheap eats, none more so than the lunchtime staples found on Larkin Street, or, as the locals call it, Little Saigon. It was in this tiny slice of heaven that I'd pay a whopping $2.30 in exchange for one of the world's best sandwiches. Meet the Bun Mi, a crispy baguette topped with cold cuts, pickled vegetables, and an assortment of other toppings. If you've never had one, consider it this week's homework assignment to find one nearby. And if there isn't one nearby, chances are there will be soon. Bun Mi restaurants are growing like crazy, and if we're all very lucky, a golden age of Bun Mi might be just around the corner. But the Bun Mi isn't just a cheap filling sandwich. It's a perfect cross-cultural byproduct, the hybrid offspring of a waning colonial France and a rising independent Vietnam. French food isn't just beef bourguignon and cassoulet. French food influences the world and is influenced by the world. And the world is not a neat or tidy place. The French themselves made sure of that. In previous episodes, we've looked at the lighter side of French cuisine. Bustling brasseries, Julia Child cheerfully dropping ducks on the kitchen floor, Belle Epoque Parisiens lounging around inventing the picnic. But this week, we're taking an up-close look at the uglier side of French food history. Imperialism, racism, xenophobia, and the resilience of the communities who have had to survive underneath French power. The tale of the Bun Mi is a tale of oppression, revolution, desperation, innovation, creativity, and above all, influence flowing in both directions. So, pour yourself a little condensed milk in your coffee, pick up a mini baguette stuffed full of happiness, and settle in for the story of the Bun Mi, sandwich of the 21st century. On August 7, 1914, F.W. Spadel crept through the burned-out rubble of his empire to catch the last ship to safety. At three in the morning, the Norwegian ship Solveig would be leaving, and if Spadel didn't make it on board in time, his life would be forfeit. He picked his way through the ruins of his office, moving silently in the dark. He had no luggage. He had no personal belongings. Out in the streets, Spadel could hear the sounds of gunfire and the last rumblings of the mob which had swept through the city that afternoon, burning and ransacking as they went. After a long summer, simmering tensions in Europe had finally exploded into the Great War, the war to end all wars, and its power was already being felt all the way on the other side of the earth in a forgotten colonial outpost. Spadel was a German, 
in land that was, at least on paper, French. And if he didn't move fast, he would be one of the Great War's first casualties. Picking his way through town, past these stately buildings filled with exhausted French colonists and their even more exhausted native servants, Spadel made it to the docks, and he and 32 other German men and women sailed off into the night. A few hours later, the Solveig would be spotted by French patrols and would be forced to return to port. For hours, the terrified Germans waited on board, unsure of their fate, until at last the French government released the Solveig to its destination, the Dutch territories of Indonesia. A few months later, Spadel arrived in the city of Sukabumi on the island of West Java. After this, he disappears from history. The morning after the Solveig's departure, the French woke up to find Spadel and the other Germans gone. Within hours, they'd cracked open the locks guarding Spadel's empire. Fast warehouses full of imported European goods. Canned meats, French wine, chocolates, canned milk, all the tastes of home. Spadel's imports were unleashed on the local economy. In the years ahead, these European delicacies, these symbols of Western civilization, these signifiers of wealth and racial superiority, would flood the marketplace, appearing in shelves across the country. But their intended customers were gone. The Frenchmen were forced out of the city shortly after the Germans, not as refugees, but as fresh military recruits. The women and children they left behind struggled to survive on meager rations and a distracted colonial administration, and they began stretching their dollars further by consuming the ultimate taboo, local cuisine. As shopkeepers watched their precious imports gather dust on the shelves, they began considering a new market for their goods. The house servants, the lower-level colonial employees, the aspiring local middle class sensing a power vacuum and a chance to experience the forbidden. Can by can, bottle by bottle, the pâté, the wheat, and the wine made their way into the homes of the locals. Saigon, and the land which would one day return to its ancient name, Vietnam, would never be the same. In 1857, the French acquired the colonial territories of Indochina more or less by accident. For hundreds of years, French missionaries made their way through the lands now known as Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, trying to convert locals to Catholicism with surprising success. Where missionaries arrived, businessmen soon followed, and flourishing trade in rice, coffee, tea, and rubber popped up. Local leaders, however, were less than impressed, and from time to time, Catholic missionaries ended up imprisoned, expelled, or executed. After one such execution, the French Navy authorized a mission to go teach the locals not to mess with French interests. The French admiral was only meant to push the Vietnamese around a little bit, but... One thing led to another, and whoops, he accidentally conquered the city of Saigon. Classic accident, 
Who hasn't done that? Anyway, rather than, you know, apologize and mind their own business, the French decided, eh, what's done is done, and they established French Indochina. Again, who hasn't done that? One time, I accidentally grabbed my coworker's lunch from the fridge. I could have apologized, but instead I moved into his house and made him do my laundry for the next 90 years. So now, the French find themselves saddled with this enormous territory 6,000 miles away from Paris. Following the colonial playbook, France begins sending thousands of her own guys overseas to run the colony. A lot of them bring their wives and children along, or marry local women once they arrive, and it doesn't take long before a colonial aristocracy appears. The French want to believe they're better than the Vietnamese, to justify, you know, conquering their land and exploiting their workers and hoarding all of their resources. So the French develop a racist, xenophobic belief system in which France, and all the things that come from France, is civilized and moral and correct. And Vietnam, and all the things that come from Vietnam, is dirty and immoral and backwards. You know, that old chestnut. You can see it in Haiti, Louisiana, Algeria, you get it. This belief system infiltrated every aspect of colonial life, governing what colonists and locals did for a living, what they wore, how they spoke, what they spoke, what schools they attended, what career opportunities they had, and, of course, what they ate. Your diet in Indochina fell along strict racial and social lines. Who you were determined what you ate, and more importantly, what you couldn't eat. If you were Vietnamese, sometimes this meant you pressed your nose against the glass of F.W. Spadel's windows, wondering what a baguette tasted like. Sometimes it meant your family starved to death. As the French colonists were setting up their empire in miniature, back home, French cuisine was having a moment. As we've covered in previous episodes of this podcast, the Belle Epoque was a golden age for art, literature, architecture, and especially food. This was the age of the brasserie, of the bistro, of haute cuisine. Around the world, French food became a symbol of refinement, sophistication, and civilization. Even other wealthy nations turned to France for gourmet experiences. Americans, Brits, Russians, even Germans began eating things like poached asparagus, seafood bisque, truffled partridge, and little madelines. Like so many expat communities before and since, the French communities in Indochina went to great lengths to recreate the tastes of home. But xenophobia took them a step further. To be a proud French person, one had to speak French, act French, and eat French. And they had to reject anything which felt, sounded, or tasted Vietnamese. In order to accomplish this goal, the French colonists created an absurd pantomime of the French diet, this grotesque, kind of exaggerated menu, which could only be achieved by relying on methods which actually would have been completely foreign to French people back home. 
The most obvious example of this: canned foods. Canned foods had only become widely available in French grocery stores in the 1850s and 60s, right around the time the French accidentally captured Saigon. For the most part, the only canned foods the French were interested in were gourmet luxuries imported from abroad: caviar from Russia, canned pineapple from tropical colonies, canned lobster from the United States. Familiar French foods, on the other hand, what was the point? Wealthy people might buy canned treats, but the French middle class didn't bother wasting money on canned potatoes or chicken or asparagus. The only canned food you were likely to see in the average French person's home at the time were sardines. Otherwise, the only French people eating canned food on a regular basis were soldiers in the army surviving off of cheap rations. Everybody else thought canned foods were disgusting, expensive, and possibly dangerous. But for the French expats in Vietnam, the dangers of canned food were outweighed by the dangers of local food. Nothing inspired greater horror in the colonists than the idea that they might have to eat salted fish or <gasps> chili peppers. They were desperate for familiar foods and willing to pay for it. If the average middle-class French household spent 25% of its income on food, the average colonist spent 40% on food. Why? Well, as one French woman living in colonial Vietnam remarked, that which one has shipped is always expensive. If one were willing to live off the meats of the country, off the vegetables one can grow there, well, then life would be cheap. Canning couldn't solve everything. Colonists paid dearly for the kinds of food which had to be created fresh in a foreign land. That is to say, bread and meat. Nothing was more symbolic of national identity than a proper crusty baguette. Wheat does not grow in Vietnam's humid tropical climate, so white flour had to be imported from halfway around the world. Colonists were always suspicious about adulterated flour. Had a sneaky local substituted rice flour when nobody was looking? French boulangeries popped up across every city in Indochina, with each one proudly proclaiming how very French their owner was, how traditional its ingredients and techniques were, and how much their bread would taste like home. Needless to say, the owners of these bakeries might have been French, but the people actually preparing and baking the bread were all Vietnamese. I can hear the ghost of Anthony Bourdain now rolling his eyes at the irony of it all. The reality didn't matter, though. All that mattered was holding the line, guarding one's Frenchness against the incursions of the sordid environment attacking them on all sides. Anyone trying to speak Vietnamese, wear Vietnamese clothing, or eat Vietnamese food was suspect. As one French guide to dining summed it up. No European can live the way a Vietnamese person does. The famous author Marguerite Duras, born and raised in colonial Saigon, depicted the lengths to which families were willing to go to pretend that their French replicas were better than local originals. In the Sea Wall, 
A family sits down to eat a rice flour baguette, a can of butter, a can of condensed milk, and some grilled local fish. The canned butter and canned milk is disgusting. The baguette is flimsy and weird, but the French family chokes it down. The grilled fish, on the other hand, is fresh, hot off the grill, locally caught, and completely ignored by the family. It didn't matter that canned food was disgusting. It didn't matter that canned food wasn't even eaten back home. It was about maintaining one's image and identity at all costs. Furthermore, it wasn't enough for the French colonists to eat these imported foods. They also had to make sure that Vietnamese people could not. As World War I broke out and French men were shipped back home to fight along the Western Front, the French women left behind were struck with terror. How would they afford their canned foods now? The answer was government subsidies, which were divvied out among racial lines. Heaven help the French man who'd married a Vietnamese woman. She received half as much welfare from the French government as a white woman, because it was assumed the white woman had greater costs of living. As one article put it quite neatly, the unofficial policy was that white people, even poor white people, should not have to eat native food. And the inverse was true as well. Keeping white people wealthier than the locals through subsidies kept the price of French food out of reach for all but the wealthiest Vietnamese citizens. By the turn of the 20th century, the streets of Saigon mushroomed with Parisian cafes, neoclassical architecture, and luxury hotels filled with white colonists displaying their wealth. Members of the most powerful local Vietnamese families might be able to dine at French restaurants to show off their sophistication and impress white officials, but most Vietnamese were shut out of French dining altogether. So what exactly were Vietnamese people eating? As it turns out, we actually have a really good idea of this, because it just so happens a Vietnamese journalist was in the middle of a giant survey of Vietnamese eating habits right when the war broke out. Phan Kê Binh put together an enormous, nuanced portrait of Vietnamese cuisine, pointing out the differences in eating habits between the villages and the cities, between the rich and the poor, between everyday eating and special occasion foods. While his survey paints a rich picture, a few generalizations are obvious. By and large, Vietnamese people ate much more rice, more vegetables, less meat, and fewer overall calories than the French colonists. Consumption of fish sauce, or depending on your area, soy sauce, was enormous. The salty condiments weren't just flavorful, they actually provided a large number of important nutrients in the Vietnamese diet. Surrounded by Western culinary traditions, the Vietnamese food culture that Phan Kê Binh was observing at the outbreak of World War I was changing. Even traditional ingredients were being prepared in new ways. But influence is not the same as access, and most Vietnamese people continue to observe French cuisine without actually getting to eat it. But now that F.W. Spadel had skipped town, that was about to change. 
Organizing diets along racial lines wasn't just a matter of national pride, it was a matter of national security. According to the racist science of the age, Vietnamese diets were inherently inferior. A common colonial catchphrase went, bread and meat make us strong, rice and fish keep them weak. But World War I turned traditional supply chains and local economies upside down, resulting in the kind of mishmash of local and foreign cuisines which would have horrified the French elites of the past 60 years. Within a few weeks of F.W. Spadel's nighttime flight, most French men were sailing back to Europe, French women were stretching their household budgets as their savings crumbled, and the remaining shop owners were desperate for a buck in uncertain times. So they did something radical. Shop owners began selling Spadel's European groceries at prices even local Vietnamese workers could afford. Cans of meat, bottles of beer, wheels of cheese, and condiments flew off the shelves. For the first time, the Vietnamese had access to condensed milk, and they also had access to coffee, which would prove a very popular and potent combination. The shops weren't simply selling their goods out the back door when no one was looking. No, they embraced their new market pretty energetically. Vietnamese newspapers from the war years are filled with advertisements for Western products, which are aimed squarely at the locals. The ads worked, and soon middle-class Vietnamese people began enjoying sliced baguette with cheese and jam, wine, even chocolate. For this brief window of opportunity, the social and economic boundaries around food collapsed. Vietnamese workers tasted the oh-so-rarefied European flavors they'd been told were markers of civilization and progress. Meanwhile, white families left behind in Vietnam, facing shrinking incomes, committed the ultimate taboo. They began eating Vietnamese food. This bi-directional experimentation came to an end pretty quickly after the warehouses like F.W. Spadels were cleaned out. There simply weren't enough new imports coming in. It was a war, after all, and Indochina imported half the flour and a fifth of the condensed milk that she had before the conflict. It didn't take long before wartime prices of these European imports skyrocketed again, safely out of the reach of the Vietnamese once more. As the wartime government sorted itself out, welfare was restored, ensuring that white women and children could afford the high prices of imported goods and pretend that that whole eating like a local thing had never happened. But what mattered was that that meticulously upheld racial barrier had been breached. Something was bubbling under the surface, and long after the Great War was over, it would make itself known. At this point, we're going to fast forward and skip a lot of the story. Here's what you need to know. By the end of World War II, Vietnam wanted to be independent, France wanted to remain in control, and everybody wanted Vietnam on their side of what would eventually become known as the Cold War. It wouldn't take very long before this game of international tug-of-war split Vietnam in two. If there's one thing almost everyone could agree on in the chaos of 1945, 
it was that France no longer deserved French Indochina. As Franklin Roosevelt wrote to his Secretary of State during World War II, I have, for over a year, expressed the opinion that Indochina should not go back to France, but that it should be administered by an international trusteeship. France has had the country's 30 million inhabitants for nearly 100 years, and the people are worse off than they were at the beginning. As Roosevelt continued, The case of Indochina is perfectly clear. France has milked it for 100 years. The people of Indochina are entitled to something better than that. The people of Indochina were inclined to agree and they launched a bid for independence ASAP. The problem was, even if Vietnam became her own country, what kind of country would she be, and who would be in charge? Up north, Ho Chi Minh led a communist revolution, supported by China and, indirectly, Russia. Down south, the deposed emperor led an anti-communist government, supported by the United States. Nobody supported the French, except the British, but the British were about to get distracted by uprisings and their own angry colonies. So in 1954, France formally surrendered her claims to Vietnam. Just like that, 90 years of colonial rule wiped out overnight created an enormous power vacuum, the new countries of North Vietnam and South Vietnam appeared on the map, and everyone struggled to make sense of this new world. The communists in the North and the anti-communists in the South began eyeing each other with distrust. Meanwhile, the Vietnamese, caught between these two factions, had to make a terrible choice. The capital of Vietnam, Hanoi, was once the crown jewel of French colonial influence, with the architecture, businesses, and French restaurants to prove it. Everyone knew that any trace of French influence was about to get swept away by Ho Chi Minh's army. According to the treaties of 1954, the borders between North and South Vietnam would be sealed for good on May 18, 1955. There were 300 days until the Iron Curtain would come down around North Vietnam, and Vietnamese families had to decide which side of the curtain they wanted to be on when that day came. One million Vietnamese refugees, called the Bac 54, or the Northerners of 1954, fled Hanoi and the countryside of North Vietnam towards the anti-communist South. They fled through the mountains, they crept through the countryside, they smuggled themselves onto boats. The Viet Minh army tried to prevent their crossing, and they set up blockades on land and sea. After 10 years of fighting the idea of Vietnamese independence, France's final military act in French Indochina before handing over the reins was to help refugees survive their journey to South Vietnam. Among the Bac 54 were thousands and thousands of employees in French colonial hotels, seamstresses in French tailors' shops, writers for French language publications, and of course, cooks for French restaurants. Somewhere amidst the Bac 54 was an immigrant with an idea, a street food, which was popular in northern Vietnam and which was making its way south.
We'll never know who exactly came up with the first banh mi, but it probably happened around Hanoi in the early 20th century. With so many colonial administrators gathering around the colonial capital, terrified of eating like the locals, there was no shortage of imported French charcuterie and traditional baguettes. Enter the banh mi, a long, crusty French baguette topped with salted French butter, European-style charcuterie, and maybe even a little pâté. French colonists ate the sandwich to remember home, and they were the only ones who could afford to do so. As always, the use of so many imported expensive ingredients put early banh mi sandwiches out of the price range most Vietnamese could afford for lunch. The Hanoi banh mi was simple, straightforward, and indistinguishable from the kind of fare sold at any boulangerie in Paris. It was essentially a ham and cheese sandwich. An obedient recreation, but as the sandwich made its way south half a century later, it adapted to its new surroundings. The Lee family used to reside in Hoa Ma, a tiny village in the outskirts of Hanoi. Every day, Mrs. Lee would commute into the city to work for a French company, which imported European processed meats and distributed them to French restaurants. Those French restaurants were first to go under Ho Chi Minh's regime, so Mrs. Lee and her husband gathered their belongings and joined the Bac 54, eventually settling in the new capital of South Vietnam, Saigon. Mrs. Lee set up a bun mi shop like the kinds which used to line the streets of Hanoi, but she began to innovate. Incorporating the flavors and ingredients and preferences of her new home, while figuring out how to offer sandwiches at a cheaper price point. French Indochina was dead. There were only so many customers able and available to afford the traditional bun mi once sold up north. As a new refugee, Mrs. Lee needed income fast, and she wouldn't find it by catering to the ghosts of the French. Instead, she began stuffing her bun mi with local produce, herbs, seafood, whatever was fresh and tasty and local. Imported French cornichons weren't easy or cheap to acquire, so pickled carrots and daikon radishes made their debut. Mrs. Lee's husband realized he could cut the price down to a working man's budget by reducing the amount of expensive white flour baguette which was used. The amount of imported salted butter was halved as well, and mostly replaced with mayonnaise, which could be made locally. The final result: the classic bun mi special, a six-inch baguette with thin-sliced pork, pate, pickled carrots and daikon, fresh cilantro, hot chili peppers, and cool cucumbers, wrapped up and ready to eat for about 40 cents. Saigon went nuts, and an entire industry sprang up to support the bun mi, including the ubiquitous Vietnamese bakeries, turning out hundreds of small, fresh rolls every few hours. The bun mi, once confined to the upper crust of French Indochina, affordable and allowed to white colonists only, was now a widely consumed post-colonial street food, gobbled up by anyone in need of cheap. Filling calories on the go. For the next twenty years, 
visitors to Vietnam wrote home about the incredible local treat they'd encountered. But in 1975, something happened which would bring the Bun Mi out of its home and into the world. Saigon fell to the Viet Minh Army. Over the next 10 years, a unified communist Vietnam experienced incredible upheaval, and Vietnamese immigrants resettled in large communities around the world. In particular, they settled in my hometown, San Jose, California, the city with the biggest Vietnamese community in America. Once again, the Bun Mi came along for the ride. In the past 10 years, the Bun Mi has emerged from Vietnamese communities and into the mainstream. The number of restaurants offering Bun Mi sandwiches in the United States increased fivefold between 2013 and 2017. Tasty Bun Mi can now be found in New Orleans, London, Mexico City, and Tokyo. Until recently, however, there was one major world city in which Bun Mi was conspicuously absent. Paris. The rulers of French Indochina didn't return home in 1954 with memories of Vietnamese street food. They couldn't have. They'd never tasted it. Ex-colonials spent too much time missing croissants to try sticky rice cakes. They'd been adding beef to canned mushrooms in a pale, gross imitation of beef bourguignon, rather than enjoying that beef in a steaming bowl of pho. Remember that next time French people complain about American tourists coming to Paris to eat at a McDonald's. Oh, you could find a Parisian bun mi here and there, mostly in the 13th arrondissement, home to Paris's own Vietnamese community. Now, at last, Vietnamese food is as trendy in Paris as it is around the world, with dozens of bun mi shops popping up in every arrondissement. No less an authority on Western taste and sophistication than Paris Vogue actually offers a guide to the best Vietnamese restaurants in town, including Bun Mi shops. No less an authority on Western taste and sophistication than Paris Vogue now offers a guide to the best Vietnamese restaurants in Paris, including Bun Mi shops. 100 years of enforced cultural segregation racist ideologies of nutrition, and millions of cans of mushy imported asparagus later, the French are finally discovering the delights of Vietnamese food for themselves. And if they want more, Parisians can visit the shop Hoan Nam in the 13th arrondissement. The shop sells frozen dumplings, meat-stuffed buns, and, of course, fresh bun mi sandwiches. The shop opened in 1981 after a wave of Vietnamese refugees migrated to France after the fall of Saigon. Like F.W. Spadel's warehouse over a hundred years earlier, the shop serves expats who are hungry and desperate for the tastes of home. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. This episode made me really hungry, and I may have done some in-depth research into the bun mi if you get my drift. If you've never eaten one, now is the time. At first, I thought this episode might not be French enough for a French history podcast, 
But the more work that I read from post-colonial writers, the more I was determined to demonstrate how French history is Vietnamese history, and Algerian history, and Haitian history, and so on. At one point in time, escargot, macarons, and coffee were all exotic foreign delicacies. One day, we may look at banh mi sandwiches the same way that we look at French hot chocolate, which is, after all, a product of the Americas. I'll stop now before I get too hungry. Once again, thanks to all of you who have written in over the past few weeks, commented on the show's Facebook page, reviewed the show on iTunes, and who have contributed to the show's Patreon account. I appreciate each and every one of my listeners, and I always enjoy hearing from you. So thanks for saying hello. Until next time, au revoir.